Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a board game podcast about board games. I'd like to welcome all the new listeners. If you're new to the show, welcome. We welcome one and all. We talk about some board games, Mark. We're going to talk about the games we played this week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And we're going to talk about our feature game of the week, which is Title Blades. Exciting, right? Mark, how are you today? I'm very well, thanks. How are you, Walker? Always good. I'm hopped up on cheap pre-Christmas chocolate. That's the best kind of chocolate. Ready to talk about some games? Well, I don't get to participate in Easter chocolate for a variety of reasons that I that don't need to get into here. But the Christmas chocolate, oh yes. And it's not that you just turned 100 chocolate, but it's still pretty good chocolate. <laughs> yes, oldest woman in Japan, let, let's have some chocolate at the ceremony chocolate. Yes. That is probably the best of chocolate. So what did you play this week, Mark? I got to play Magic Realm. I say play in quotes here because I mostly just adjudicated the game. I was kind of the game master, shepherding someone through it. One of our overlords wanted to be taught how to play Magic Realm, and I was happy to oblige. I did the very best I could, and I say this not because I think I committed any particularly gross errors of execution, but Magic Realm is a bit of a beast. It was first published in 1979 with a first edition rulebook, which was uh, around 36 pages, and it was widely regarded as impenetrable and inco- incomprehensible. And so then a few years later, there was the second edition rulebook, which was about 80 pages long. And then people thought that that was incomprehensible. And so they made a third edition rulebook, which was over 100 pages long. And then there was kind of sort of a fourth edition rulebook, which is Magic Realm in plain English or MRIPE. I really like the second edition rules. I think they're they're mostly excellent in almost everything. I like the way they're organized. 
And the biggest problem I have with Magic Realm only manifests itself when I'm playing multiplayer because some of the timing issues get a little bit wonky. See, because if you have a native that's fighting a monster, both of which being denizens, they have to go under their own sheets. But the order in which they go on the sheets and who's the attacker and who's the defender and which sheet goes where, which matters greatly for whether or not the hireling is going to change tactics, it all matters a great deal. Magic Realm is a dizzying lifestyle game. It's very bizarre, very much of its time, but at the same time, time very timeless as well because of how much it remains iconoclastic in the field. People kind of sort of sometimes compare it to Mage Knight, and I say this despite the fact that that's the running joke of above the podcast. It has hexes, right? It has, well, for one thing, it has hexes. <laughs> well. And for another thing, it's a very rules-heavy fantasy adventure game. Richard Hamblin, the designer, has really made three momentous contributions to the field that really haven't been replicated in terms of style or bravado, really. Magic Realm, Gunslinger, and Merchant of Venus. And I, I will defend all three of those games. I think they, they hold up and they are still worth playing, even though many of them are overridden with Minutia. At any rate... In Magic Realm, we had a white knight who showed up, attempted to do some commerce with some locals, but the locals were driving too hard a bargain, and the white knight, just having arrived to the Magic Realm, couldn't afford any of their services. So he uh, wandered around, found some monsters, killed a couple flying dragons, which was great. People started talking about it, he was starting to get a little bit of buzz, but there were a couple of problems. Number one, his armor had been destroyed, and number two, Mark had to start making dinner. So, (laughs) Magic Realm is... One of those games that I'm always going to come back to because as a system, it fascinates me. Its intricacies, its uniqueness is just utterly unparalleled. And I really think that it's the kind of thing that every serious hobbyist who cares about the sort of history of Avalon Hill, now granted this is a very small niche of people who who, who care about that kind of thing, could do a lot worse than taking a look at Magic Realm and trying to see if it's the kind of system that you want to explore. Again, very small audience. But I really am glad that it's the kind of thing that I get to go back to. Copies can be can be found. Uh, a, a bit of a problem with the implementation that we had, though, and one of the reasons why I committed some errors in the course of my explanation of Magic Realm is the version that's on Tabletop Simulator that automates the 45-minute-long setup is the redesign done by famed graphic designer Karim Shakroom. And it has just different iconography from the version that I'm familiar with, namely the the printed version. It's a little busier. I mean, artwork is subjective, but I actually prefer the the simple, borderline simplistic presentation of the items, the counters, the denizens, the monsters, etc. of the original artwork. But that's a matter of taste, and so I had to acclimatize myself to an entirely different graphic setup. Magic Realm is not the kind of thing that I want to play every day. It's not even necessarily the kind of thing that I want to play every year, but I am grateful for the opportunity every couple of years to refamiliarize myself with the system. It's one of my favorite quirky little oddities of Avalon Hill's catalog, and I sincerely hope that the patron that I guided through the game enjoyed playing it half as much as I did revisiting the system and getting to share it with somebody else. And that was my experience with Magic Realm. That rulebook sounds a little bit like the Divine Right rulebook. You know, the non-aligned, non-active player character... Well, it's weird. It's a, it's a little it's a little less problematic than that because there are some rule books that are very very scant, and rely very particularly on those kinds of distinctions. I'm thinking actually in particular of uh, a couple of Napoleonic's war games actually where diplomacy matters and you care whether this thing was a subjugated neutral or a minor reliant satellite ally things like that, and you start puzzling over this weird taxonomy of 
kind of sort of friends as opposed to just, well, can I tell them what to do or not? And the answer is always, well, it depends. In Magic Realm, it's a little more straightforward than that. And the combat system is intricate, but really, really cool, and not the kind of thing where something tends to blindside you. Just the parameters of what you're able to kill and how. That's the part that I really like. The, the stuff that starts getting really complicated and fiddly is more about when you're, number one, playing it on Realmspeak, which is the Java adaptation, which is brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I've done it a couple times. But there you have to follow all the procedures exactly. When you're playing solo and the timing doesn't matter, you can fudge things a little bit and just say, I want this thing to try to kill this, and I want this thing to try to kill this. Okay, this is how it shakes out. And not care about how you got there. Gotcha. It's only those details of Minutia where my brain starts to swim a little bit at Magic Realm. And mostly because, as I say, I mostly play it solo. I haven't played multiplayer in about 10 years. And it's not, I don't think that's even where it's best. I think it's, it's best as either a co-op experience where you're deliberately setting out together to conquer the realm together using complementary characters, maybe a magic heavy character or maybe a weak character who's good at finding secret things, guiding around a big bruiser who just stands in the back and says, tell me when to hit things. At any rate, I could talk for hours about Magic Realm, and I fear that I've already spoken too much about Magic Realm. What did you play this week, Walker? Moving on to a game that wasn't quite so complicated, Mark, you and I got to play Funkoverse, the strategy game. Slightly less complicated. Designed by Nunya and published by Funko Games. Nunya? Nunya Business. It's uncredited. Uh, Subsequent versions have been credited to Prospero Hall. I thought, oh, it does say Prospero Hall. I thought that was... I thought Prospero Hall was the name of the, the the company. No, Prospero Hall is the name of a design collective. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. See, so there you go. What do I know? I know nothing, obviously. So Mark and I got to play Funkoverse, the strategy game, where they take those pop Funko things, they sort of miniaturize them, and they put them in a nice, easy-to-play, skirmishy-type game, which plays a lot like the WoW collectible miniature game, I felt, right? Instead of putting your uh, characters on a timer and waiting for them to come up, they put your abilities on a timer, which makes more sense and makes it flow a lot better and play a lot better, in my opinion. I don't know if I felt the immediate comparison. I think you're absolutely right that the timer element is vaguely reminiscent. Abilities work on a cooldown. I don't know that I'd say it's as good as the World of Warcraft miniatures game, because I quite like that design. I thought it was really good, and it did a lot of good things to avoid leading to scrums. We had a little bit of a scrum in our game where people bunched up. That was mostly, I should acknowledge, because I was playing poorly. You would set up a point advantage, and then you were very, very happy to turn everything into a meat grinder, because that was fighting on your terms, not mine. Had I been playing more cleverly, we might have seen a little bit more dynamic action. I'd want to see a few more scenarios, play a couple more characters, but initially when I heard about this game, I was uninterested because I assumed it was a standard sort of licensed cash grab generic thing. And then I heard it was a skirmish game. And then they released the Golden Girls into this skirmish system. And then I confess I was intrigued. Not intrigued enough to actually pick anything up. What finally made me pull the trigger was the Nightmare Before Christmas set. Because with licensed properties, I want to wait until there's something that I really, really have enthusiasm for. And I really like The Nightmare Before Christmas. It's, it's, a, it's probably my favorite Christmas movie and my favorite Halloween movie. I, yes, I prefer to Die Hard, which is most people's favorite Christmas movie. And I absolutely acknowledge that Die Hard is a Christmas movie. If you don't agree, then you're just wrong. And it's hard to say anything too negative about a game where the Kool-Aid man holding a raptor claw went and planted Rick Sanchez 
while saying, oh, yeah, like that's it's it's got all the nostalgia, nostalgia value there, right? It has you're going to find a special character that you like and you're going to combo them up with other things. And like you said, I'm interested to play it more because you'll get some interesting how they all work together. I'd like to do a like sort of Rick and Morty versus, you know, Back to the Future duo. That would be a cool. Little, oh, yeah, that'd be a good idea. That'd be a neat little, you know, scrum against each other. Stuff like that. I'm looking forward to playing it more. There's the possibility of some clever army building stuff, precisely based on how the activation tokens work. Every character comes with two or sometimes three activation tokens, which then power like colored abilities. So if you work on synergies, you might have more flexibility in terms of activating your abilities. On the other hand, you might then be pigeonholed into just certain kinds of abilities and you might not be as flexible. And so that might might lead to some interesting trade-offs. I, I certainly felt the absence of more red tokens for the Kool-Aid Man, because of course the Kool-Aid Man is powered by red tokens. What other color of token would the Kool-Aid Man be powered by? It wouldn't by? make any other sense. Absolutely. I actually had a little bit of, went down a weird aesthetic rabbit hole trying to figure out why some pops had mouths and some didn't and it's it's tricky for a while it looked like all the human pops didn't have mouths so if originally if, if this is a funko pop of a human then it doesn't have a mouth if it's a funko pop of an animated character or some other made-up creature then it has a mouth that failed when i saw that the funko pop for blanche had a mouth so it's a little more complicated than i initially suspected but we'll have to, we'll have to get some people on that we're going to have to get get to the bottom of this. This is a serious taxonomical question. I enjoyed it. It was a bit of a dice fest, but there are tons of different scenarios, tons of different boards to try, tons of different character combinations, and I'm definitely willing to go for another couple go-rounds, especially at that duration and that level of delightfulness. Yeah, and that's Funkoverse Strategy Game by Prospero Hall, published by Funko Games. We played Hansa Teutonica. Swag favorite Hansa Teutonica. Louis wanted to try something on Tabletopia. And because I'm a selfless individual, I said, all right. Despite the fact that Tabletopia is, I think, the worst way to play games possible. Namely, it is the worst way of playing games online, which itself is the worst way of playing games. It took us 45 minutes to get the game started due to a variety of technical issues, which seem to be endemic every time I've ever tried to load up Tabletopia. Are you using the app or are you using the website? Oh, okay. Well, there are problems with both. Oh, you can't find each other? Where am I? Try to send the invite code again. Oh, it says I'm here. I don't see you there. I can't hit the launch. It says I'm ready. I don't know. Oh, I dropped. So after getting through all that, we got to play Hansa Teutonica. And it was played... It was yet another... How what can you say about Hansa Teutonica? I know. I can say some things. I can say I wish we played it more so we could actually try some of the other maps... It would be nice. I've I've seen all these other maps. I've read about <laughs> I've read about how all these other maps work. I, I've 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 looked forward to trying these new maps. But have you, you never tried the other I, maps? I have never tried none them. of the other maps. Never. Oh well, that's weird. That's just not right. I like all the maps, quite frankly. So I don't mind playing on the quote unquote base game map. It was a marvelous game, full of direct confrontation that didn't feel like a direct aggression, which is the hallmark of good interaction of your excellent Euro a la Hansa Teutonica. And everyone had a great time. Everyone says the same thing when we play Hansa Teutonica again, which is, oh yeah, I remember how great this thing is. Which is really telling. It's a, it's a swag favorite for a reason. I'm glad we got to go back to it. Then we, you and I got to play a new game called Beyond the Sun. This is a giant tech tree type game and all the action happens on a little sideboard. Seems a little more a little more interesting, crazy action going on there. And I feel as though the more we play, the more that little side map is going to matter and going to get way more cutthroaty than it actually is. So what do you think of Beyond the Sun? 
Beyond the Sun was designed by Dennis K. Chen, and in interest of full disclosure, I've met Dennis socially on a couple of occasions. He's a mutual friend of some people I knew in Boston, and he greeted me at the door to his home wearing a 3D-printed plastic mustache. We believe in editorial rigor here at So Very Wrong About Games, and I defy you to find anyone giving a disclosure or disclaimer that precise anywhere else in the entire journalistic field. Is that what they call a mustache drop? (laughs) At any rate... Uh, I didn't ever play the prototype of this, which Dennis was designing even at the time. And as you say, it's this worker placement game where the worker actions uh, evolve over the course of the game by virtue of the text that people invent. And it's one of those things where, and this this is a minor degree of cognitive dissonance, but it always bothers me a little bit. Not in a serious way, but in a little bit. Where the degree of size that components take up on the table is disproportionate to its consequence in terms of victory points. Now, it wasn't as bad as I feared because the, you have this massive board with all the text that, that that lay out. And then you have this small board where, as Walker says, you're maneuvering your ships and possibly taking over or colonizing various planets based on an area control mechanism. And it's very small in comparison. And you get a crap load of points from that. And sometimes it feels as though it's of greater importance than the actual tech tree. Now, I'm going to want to play more to find out the precise balance of points and see how things come out. Because I'm curious about a number of things. Number one is precisely this proportion of points. Secondly, on the face of it, it looks like there could be a serious degree of variety in terms of how the game plays out. Because you have different victory cards that come out, different achievements that you can get. And you only see a very small subset of them every game. And you might see very uh, very different texts coming out. I don't know how much of an influence that's going to have. Your initial texts are necessarily fixed. Your level 4 texts are all just about endgame points, as you might imagine. So it's mostly about what level 2 and level 3 texts come out. Some of them might be more military. Some of them might be more commercial. Some of them might be more scientific. I don't know how that's going to actually impact the game. The worker placement element itself was fine. There was a lot of incidental blocking, people wanting to colonize, but they couldn't because other people had gotten there first, but not in the aggressive sort of way of Agricola, but definitely not in the sort of lackadaisical way of, well, I guess we should have blocking because it's a worker placement game. I really like the balance that you had to do with your income, right? Because every round you did this production, and so all these new humans would flow into your into your system. But if you didn't keep up your production of these humans, then you would have no flow of the humans, and therefore you would run out of humans. Yeah, the production was well done. I actually really appreciated the fact that after every turn, you would do production. It really made it so that the costs were substantial, but you never felt as though you had to wait many, many turns fallow in order to get anything done. I thought that the overall influx of goods, both people, which are sometimes goods figuratively and sometimes goods literally, if you throw them into the meat grinder and they come out the other end as ore, or ore, was darn near perfect. It felt great to me. Things felt expensive but doable, which was nice. And so you got a sense of accomplishment when you got that level 4 tech, or you finally colonized that system you'd been fighting over with your your, your friends for a while. So it was enjoyable. You know, it was a 30-minute-per-player worker placement game with evolving worker spaces. So nothing particularly earth-shattering new, but it came together in a relatively nice package. There was some good player interaction. The economy seemed to be very satisfying. And I'm very curious about how much variety there is. If there's a lot of variety, if the different cards and the different texts lead to making it feel different, I think we might have something with some serious likes. I don't know. I have just one point here. Do you feel when it did come around to your turn that you had an, an obvious move or a force move? Like, i.e., your human 
income was about to dissipate, so you had to increase that, so you had to do this type of action, or that planet just became available, so it was obvious that you should move some ships there, or or that colonized action is finally freed up, so now is my turn to take that. I just felt hmm. maybe as though that when it was your turn, there was an obvious choice to take every time. It's interesting. I didn't have that experience, but I could see why someone might. The only time where I felt that uh, a play was obvious, as you put it, was as a capper of several turns buildup, like, for example, colonizing something. I had finally massed my forces, and I could see that other players, given time, could contest my presence. And so I should really take advantage of the opportunity, because when you colonize a planet, it goes out of play. You take it, and it's yours forever, and no one can threaten it anymore. But I didn't really feel that that was forced, more just, aha, I've, I'm able to pull off this maneuver. Not so forced, but just obvious, that's all. Hmm. I don't know. I'll have to pay more attention to that next time. In terms of production, I felt that, although, again, I found it very satisfying that it was every turn, I didn't feel like it was a tremendously agonizing choice in that sense. Like, well, I don't have any ore left, or I can't afford the action I want to do next turn. I guess I'd better get some more, or I'm running out of people. I'd better go get more people. But that was more of the production action yeah, at true. the end of my actual so placement. It, yeah, it wasn't so much the, you know, what kind of production to do. It was more of the worker placement part, I yeah. thought. Was... And I'm a sucker for science fiction. There was just enough flavor to keep me happy. You know, this this was an android fleet rather than just extra movement capability. That was nice. Lot, I liked it. A lot of transformer action going on. <laughs> yes, uh, we your goods, your good crates turn into people because they're all represented on the same cube. And then your people can turn into ships because you're staffing the ships. Alternatively, you could regard it as we did, and they are all transformers. So. Exactly, because you can decommission them back into humans again, so... No, no, it's, it's it's the crew. It's the crew on the ship. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's Transformers. So I, for one, want to try Beyond the Sun again. 100%. And there's Beyond the Sun by Dennis K. Chan and Rio Grande Games. I'll go next. I'll go turn, yeah, go I'll, ahead. I'll go turn yeah. rolling. People like to hear you talk, Walker. Mark, sometimes uh, when you play a game, you get to appreciate things more, like certain mechanics or who you play with. I got to play uh, Terra Mystica this week, and I, I really appreciate the fact that I own Gaia Project. <laughs> yeah, so Terra Mystica is a great game. Uh, it's one of these things where you're trying to really optimize your actions and your income so you sort of last longer in the turns as more than other players, and that just sort of chain reacts and gets you more and more powerful, and you so you you know, overtake your opponents. But I just really feel, I like how Gaia Project does it better than Terra Mystica. It just has that better feel that has a little bit more powerful powers that the, the characters have, has a little bit more theme that makes sense to me. And it just overall feels better, like the, how the tech tree works as opposed to the cult track and that kind of thing. I just like it better. And I, I, I'm, you know, I'm not saying it is better. I'm just saying for me personally, I'd rather play Guy Project every time. We only speak in terms of ineluctable, ineffable, quasi-mathematical truths here on this podcast, Walker. So I would, I would ask you to take your opinions and stow them, sir. I'm so sorry. As I keep saying, I, w I want to go back to Guy Project. We need to play it again. Because I feel like I was missing something the times that I was playing it. And every time I've played Terra Mystica and Gaia Project, I feel like there's something just past the horizon that I'm not quite grasping because it always feels so desperately unsatisfying and such small ball. But I, I recognize the genius of the design. There's a lot of good stuff going on in there. And I don't find the unbalanced nature of the different powers quite as obnoxious as a lot of other heavy Eurogamers do. So I'm looking forward to revisiting it someday. 
I'm glad your preference for Gaia Project was further cemented <laughs> by playing Terra Mystica again. There you go. We pulled out Project Elite, the Cool Money or Not version, of course, the one we reviewed a few months ago. And I think what this has cemented for me is that hard is the only difficulty pl- level worth playing on. We played an extermination mission, and I asked you what difficulty level you wanted, and you said hard, and it was the right call. Because in the past, when we've played on definitely on easy, and even sometimes on medium, we've emerged not having been wounded at all. And that is not especially satisfying. It doesn't lead to the kind of frenetic action that one wants out of a game like Project Elite, because I'm increasingly of the opinion that there are two different ways you can do real-time games. There's the, this is to move things along, nothing should feel too frenetic, which I would identify as sort of a Millennium Blades approach, a sort of pendulum approach. This is just to make sure that things that things go along. Senji as well, the diplomacy phage. And then there's, we're not giving you enough time to do everything you want. You had better run around, as you would say, with your pants on your head. This is the space alert. This is the project elite. This is your space cadets dice duel type of, of freneticism. And it takes a little bit of the teeth out of it when you get to do it too easily. That's right. So the pressure, I think, on hard was just right for us. I don't know if it's because I was rolling rather well. I seem to have a good good string of luck with the dice rolls or what. But we like losing co-ops and we like being under pressure in co-ops. And, you know, we both lost a die over the course of Wounds from Project Elite. But we pulled it out and it was it was great fun. Yeah, and I at first, you know, going over the setup, I thought, you know, this was a little tedious for the the payout but when you have two players that know what to do i think it just it works that much faster for a game that's very quick there's a lot of sprawl there's a lot of components to manage a number of decks to shuffle stuff like that but you're right you need to be able to make sure that many people manage it if for no other reason than just managing the different kinds of alien minis i've played games before where one person was in charge of effectively managing it all because they didn't delegate properly and then project elite can be a drag i love it i will never get rid of it it is one of my favorite games. Project Elite, real-time, alien shooter. It's right in the same vein as, you know, like a Space Hulk or anything else. Down to the wire. Shooty, shooty, bang, bang. <laughs> Love it. I really like it. I don't like it as much as you did. But then again, we, we covered all this in the review. I'm glad that we went back to it. It's been too long. We should probably keep it in the rotation more regularly. Uh, it is reviled by those that revile real-time games, and so therefore it's not appropriate for every audience. But... For those that are okay with such things, it is a great high-casualty, high-body-count romp. Played a game called Trekking the World by Charlie Brink, published by Underdog Games. It's just a, It's very light, sort of like a hand-management game. You're dealt all these different colors, and there's all these uh, different color points on the map, and the cards also have numbers on them. But And so you play these cards, and you move around the map, and you have to move exactly the numbers that are on the cards. And you pick up all these different colored tokens and you put them on your little card. And you can also visit monuments and stuff that are around the world. You just have to make sure you have the right cards and get to the right spot as well. So sort of which cards am I going to use for movement? Which cards am I going to keep to try to you know lay for these monuments? And there's also a mechanic where if you pick up the last cube in a continent, then you also get another bonus for that as well. And it's a quick little game. Very inoffensive. Didn't mind it at all. Trekking the world. On the topic of Trekking the world, we also played Civilization A New Dawn with the Terra Incognita expansion. We've been coming back to this a number of times because it's really quite a strange design. And uh, one of the things that I greatly appreciate about the expansion is that it is probably one of the best expansions of the past few years that I've tried in terms of rejuvenating the base game. 
The base game had a very strange military system. I appreciated what it was trying to do, but I don't think it was overall successful. And it led to very strange endgame situations. And the base game, admittedly, suffered from a parsimony of victory conditions. And one of the best additions that you can have in, in an expansion is just more stuff to offer a greater pro- play variety and a greater diversity of tactics and strategies that you might choose to employ. And for that alone, I think, if you enjoy Civilization and New Dawn, the Terra Incognita expansion is to be commended. I am now appreciating the game almost purely as a technical rule-based puzzle, and I try to spend as little time as possible imagining that this has any remote resemblance to anything that you might call Civ. I've said this before, I've never played a Sid Meier Civ PC game. When I think of Civilization games, I think purely in terms of Francis Tresham. And I find it very bizarre when Carthage is right next door to the Dead Sea, which is right next door to Seoul, which is right next door to Geneva, and my civilization has mass media and still researches things through astrology. And I just, it just doesn't make any sense to me. It, it's so absurd as to be borderline comically offensive. Offensive in, in my sense of thematic integration, not offensive to the people of Seoul. Like, I'm not saying that this is an insult to Korea to present Seoul in this way. I'm just saying it's just so silly. In many ways, it's even sillier than the Funkoverse game, honestly, in terms of the way all these things are mashed together without regard to context. So, in short, Civilization of New Dawn is the least civvy Civ game I've ever played. It doesn't feel at all like any kind of Civ as a result. But it does do map manipulation and area control and satisfying certain puzzly-type victory conditions while managing an interesting action selection mechanism, which honestly is a, are a lot of the things that I like in a reasonable middleweight game. It's still a little bit weird in terms of the rules interactions. There's still little weird rules irregularities that, that are a little unfortunate. And by virtue of the fact that we now have two rule books to deal with, well, it's fantasy flight. It could have been worse. It could have been like four. It's sometimes a little bit difficult to find an answer on the fly, but there are numerous very good player aids now available. And I make frequent reference to them, and that is helpful uh, significantly. What are your thoughts on I just Civilization think it, of New Dawn? I just think it smoothed out all of the stuff that uh, previous Civ games have done. You know, made everything much more simple, like the tech trees, the movement, the combat, and still giving you that essence feel of a Civ game, like the, being able to pick your techs and upgrade as you wish. And they have the wonders there and the sort of exploring and still attacking people. So, you know, it gives you everything that you'd get in a Civ game, but, you know, you can get it out in an hour to 45 minutes. True. I don't know that it gives you everything you would want in a Civ game. When I, when I play a Civ game, what I want is some sense of sweep, some sense of an evolution of a kingdom or, or, or what have you. And I get that in Antica. I get that in some of the, the quicker science fiction games, even because 4X games in the science fiction mold are kind of sort of Civ games, basically, and vice versa. I certainly get that in Through the Ages. And Through the Ages suffers from a bit of the absurdity of this kind of atemporal nonsense that's completely divorced from cultural or historical background. But Civilization of New Dawn definitely ramps it up to 11 in terms of how absurd everything is because they add on the geographical level to it as well. So I, I wouldn't necessarily go that far, and I think you're underestimating the length. I think a game of Civil New Dawn is, is roughly 20 to 30 minutes per player, reliably. And a two-player game in 45 minutes strikes me as a little bit optimistic, even under those constraints, but... Anyway, maybe I haven't been paying close enough well, attention. As the power tokens go out, it gives you a little bit, you know, a feel of growth. 
Yes, but it doesn't feel at all like I'm expanding like a civilization would. It doesn't feel like I'm a, a, a people advancing and occupying certain spaces in a, in a real world because everything feels so abstract and so divorced. It's true. When I'm playing Antica, and this is, this is minor, by the way. I'm not suggesting that Antica is an incredibly thematically coherent exploration of the evolution of civilizations. But when I'm playing Antica and one player is playing the Greeks and one player is playing the Romans and you get to see how people fight over border skirmishes and as the the spheres of influence evolve it's the mediterranean so you get a sense of what's going on there there's a there's a sense of scope there's a sense of place a sense of groundedness of context that i cannot take seriously in seven new dawn it's like i say it's as absurd as the Funkoverse game because all these things are just being mashed together it's like oh the terracotta army that's cool oh yeah the leaning tower of pisa that's cool too put it in there bam 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 Keep hitting it until everything fits in. <laughs> As a result, it's just this weird stuff. Yeah, t- uh, thematically it is kind of weird. But I think the, the rules do pull it together the way they do the card system, the Conan sort of sli- sliding action, sort of reverse Conan because your stuff gets better as opposed to penalizing you as it shifts, right? So, And, the, and it's not only uh, the numbers, you know, making your combat higher or giving you more production. It also has, you know, uh, terrain features as it goes up so that like it intermingles all these different rule sets and puts it all into these cards because it's also your text. I think it is pretty, pretty yeah. amazing mechanism. Yes, I agree. The The activation mechanism, your act, the actual actions you're doing is very clever, integrates very tightly with the map in a very smooth and elegant way. And most of the other extraneous stuff is where things start to get, as I say, it's around the margins. It's what happens when a barbarian shows up here and then an army wants to move over there. And can I settle a city here? Well, no, the terrain difficulty here is kind of sort of one, but also kind of sort of six. And like, it, it yeah, as I say, that those are, those are minor complaints. As I say, for a strategy game, the fact that it gives you a fair degree of variety and has a really, really, really clever action mechan- uh, selection mechanism and has substantial player interaction, it's hard to go wrong with that combination. And it, as, it's not as quick as I think you're setting it out to be, but it's certainly not over long. It's not going to be a three, four-hour experience. Uh, true, I, say, I should have said comparatively shorter than a normal Civ game. Absolutely. So uh, under that, you just, again, it, it's difficult to, to feel too down on Civ and New Dawn. I really appreciate the fact, again, that Fantasy Flight decided to go to a design that was published several years ago and give it some love. And it tore out all the bits that didn't work and completely replaced them. And it just added more variety to the stuff that could have a greater degree of variety. So I'm a huge fan of what they did with Terra Incognita. And I think it's made Civ and New Dawn a worthy game. At first, I wish they had made it like more of a module expansion where you could just add certain bits. But then after the fact, I realized I... Just some things wouldn't have worked if you if you didn't add them in. I.e., the whole dial system would have been pointless if you didn't add everything. Anyway. It's true. And that was Civilization of New Dawn, specifically the Terra Incognita expansion. And those are the games we played this week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. The Zenobia Award has been announced, which is an award for aspiring board game designers in the historical game field, but it has a specific focus. Uh, I'll just read the introduction of the Zenobia Award on their website. Historical board games are enjoyed by people from all walks of life, but their designers are predominantly white men. The Zenobia Award helps to change this by encouraging game submissions from people from marginalized groups. And in addition to being an award for game design, it's going to come with cash money, which is always great, and a mentorship. It's not just a sort of, oh, the, like the, the Charles Roberts Awards or the Golden Geeks or whatever. Not that there's anything, not that there's any problem with those awards, but they're just to 
recognize achievement and then move on. Uh, this is more of a mentorship program, and there's a lot of really heavy hitters and really interesting people that are involved in this project. And I think it is a wonderful move, and I cannot wait to see what comes out of it. And that is the Zenobia Award. You can find more information about it on zenobiaaward.org. So a new game on Kickstarter. It's called Reality Shift by Matt Hansen. And he's known for a lot of designs, sort of like uh, Reality Shift. So <laughs> in Reality Shift, it's all these cubes and they all have different little lanes on them and stuff. And they're going to be rotating and, and flipping up on each other. And you're going to be driving around these speeder bikes that are magnetized to the side of them. And this is a game that I really want to try. The price tag comes in a little high for, I feel, the weight of the game that it's going to be. It seems awfully light, and the tag seems awfully high. But it's one of these games where I just really wanted to play it and see how it works as you don't drive down the side and then up the inside of cubes, and and you can rotate them down so they crush the bikes. And it just seems like it might be something interesting. I'd like to see, you know, what he does does with it. And that is Reality Shift. Magnets are awesome. And I was very intrigued, but then I saw how it, it seemed to be sort of a spatial puzzle, and at that point, I, I tune out. Gotcha. But I agree, it looks very interesting. So I talked about how Fantasy Flight, how I appreciated them going back a few years to breathe life into an old design. And again, I've commented before that it was nice that they did something that, although technically a licensed game from a video game, it was not Star Wars or Cthulhu. Or, or Marvel. Or Marvel. Well, Fantasy Flight is no longer going to be doing Star Wars miniatures games. So Armada, X-Wing, and Legion are now going to be handed off to another Asmodee subsidiary, Atomic Mass, who heretofore have just been doing the Marvel Crisis Protocol game. And so I don't want to be conspiratorial. I don't want to be overly cynical. But uh, what's happening with FFG, man? So their RPG division got gutted. And now many of their most prominent game lines are not res- not theirs anymore. What's happening with FFG, man? I have no idea. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of scared. But they, they doesn't look they, promising. They sort of petered out a while ago. Like they started putting out original stuff and just kept falling back on you know second, third editions and, and license stuff and LCGs. Stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I was never as big a fan of FFG as you were, and probably still are. But it does seem a little bit sad. And I don't know to what extent this is Asmodee pulling the strings. I don't know whether this is the sort of organic descent, uh, descent, no pun intended, of a once heavy hitter in the hobbyist games market. But it's a little disappointing and it feels a little bit, I'm getting sort of the same vibe I did when Mayfair finally shut its doors. It's like, oh, you used to be great, you used to be made very influential, a big mover in the hobby, and now you're kind of, sort of, not as much anymore, which... Yeah, and, and Star Wars is huge. Like, I didn't see the actual numbers, but th- some of the comments I, I saw were, it in one year, uh, X-Wing brought in as much money as they had made from day one to that date. It's, it's a huge deal, and I don't play X-Wing anymore. I never really played Armada except for a couple times, and Legion had negative interest for me. And so naturally you have this sort of bias where, like, well, I don't care about the game, so clearly no one else does. Other than X-Wing, they're not really prominent locally, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything. But they're all doing great. They're all doing relatively well. Armada has always sort of been the redheaded stepchild in terms of their level of attention, but they're going to be expanding with new factions and a whole bunch of new ships. I'm not saying that these product lines are troubled. 
I have no idea whether Atomic Mass will be able to do as much with them, but it's all under Asmodee at the end of the day. But one wonders what's left for FFG, whether they have a positive positive idea for them going forward, or whether this is just a fire sale and all of FFG's stuff is going to be shoveled out to other people. Yeah, exactly. yeah the question is just why. why. Why does this need to be pulled out? But who knows? Speaking of which, the crew. Crew is getting another, I don't even know what it is, Mark. Another edition? Another game? I hope they do a little bit more with it than just give you another story, but same mechanics. I hope they try to do something with it. But anyway, long story short, this is The Crew Mission Deep Sea. So now it's going to be under the water. More crew, I guess, is better than less crew. (laughs) Yeah. I wonder, can you think of any property that went from underwater to deep space? Because there are a number of times where it's gone from deep space to underwater. But I, I can't think of any time it's, it's happened the, the, the other way around. Not off the top of my head, anyway. Yeah. So Tom Russell of Holland Spiel is a very interesting designer, and she's got a new railroad game out called Dual Gauge. And this is going to be a new game system with new maps that can come out, kind of in the cubes, Cube Rails tradition of economic manipulation, but not 18xx, and intended to play in, you know, less than three to four hours, which is kind of sort of what the shorter 18xx's get in, and then they're the longer 18xx's. But hey, I like Magic Realm and other Avalon Hill games. I guess I'm not in a position to complain about length of games and obscurity of topic. So, one thing that I just want to stress is that uh, Hollenspiel is a very interesting company. They've got a holiday sale going on now, and they're they're Titles tend to be relatively difficult to find outside their own web store. And if you want to just see some great quasi-surrealistic gonzo writing, you should just read the descriptions they write for their various games. Because it's mostly, I what I assume is Tom Russell, insulting her own designs and insulting her own company. Because, just as an example, Dual Gauge is not going to come with any money. No physical money in the game. They assume that you either have poker chips or physical money in some other game. This isn't quite going what I would call the full cheap-ass games, but it's definitely along those lines. And so Tom Russell basically says of her design, it's like, who would want a choo-choo game where that doesn't even have a its own money. Anyway, here's my game. <laughs> I love reading about their stuff, and sometimes on occasion, and this time too, I you know filled up a cart with two or three very choice Hollenspiel titles that I want to try, and then they tell me that shipping to Canada will cost every cent I have, and then I say, so long Hollenspiel, maybe I'll see you later. <laughs> but you should definitely go check out Dual Gauge when and if it comes out and is available on these shores. I will very much be interested in it. So Mark, I don't know if I've ever said before, but I love Caverna. I still own Caverna. I've kept it after all the purges. Yeah, you're wrong to like Caverna and not like Agricola. Yeah. Uwe Rosenberg put out a great game called Caverna, and they're going to be putting out another expansion for it. This is called Frantic Fiends. This is not by Friedman Fries? No, it is not. Because that is totally what he would call it. Yeah, it's totally be what he would call it. It's coming out in October 2021, and I guess orcs are invading your little dwarven... I guess it's not going to be dwarven... Because you have the other expansion that, you know, it could be any kind of mine. So, well, apparently they're not sure whether the expansion will be compatible with that version. Oh, gotcha. So it will probably still be Dwarven Mines. So Dwarven Mines being invaded by orcs and or goblins and, and stuff like that. So more the merrier because the box lid is already half off anyway. So more stuff I'd, I'd go for. So it's not even, it's just floating on the top. That would be great. I have a question for you, Walker. No, it's never enough, Caverna. <laughs> well, when you buy a Caverna, you already get, what is it, seven full sets of player components? Yes. Yeah, so clearly uh, too much is never enough as far as Caverna is concerned. You have expressed a firm dislike 
of having to feed your workers. So at the end of the round, have to feed your workers, no bueno. What if at the end of the round, orcs steal an equivalent amount of food? Is that better, worse, or the same? Well, you should have defended your food from the orcs then, shouldn't you? All right, fair enough. (laughs) Prejudice well established. I just wanted to confirm. And that's legit. It's fine. Like, loss aversion works in, in strange ways. So David Thompson is sort of an infuriating genius in that he keeps churning out amazing designs at a rate that seems dizzying. He recently launched on Kickstarter with DVG Games, Soldiers in Postman's Uniforms. This is another game in the Valiant Defense series, which has already seen Pavlov's House, which is amazing, Castle Itter, which is very good, and now Soldiers in Postman's Uniforms. And very much like Castle Itter, Soldiers in Postman's Uniforms is going to be one of those lesser-known, sort of strange, huh, I didn't know it happened that way, stories of siege in World War II. This actually took place in the first day of World War II, and it consisted of a mixed force, including actual postal workers defending a post office against German attack. This is on Kickstarter, as I said, and I'm definitely going to be taking a very close look at it because the previous games in the series are amazing and more David Thompson is definitely good David Thompson. True, but this runs into the problem that I had with there'll be actual people. They're not in the military, so they weren't they weren't asked to be put in the situation and now they're being depicted in a game. Sure. And anyway... I respect your misgiving. I don't feel the same misgiving, but I respect where you're coming from. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. Now on to Title Blades by Druid City Games. Mark, who designed this game? Tim Eisner and Ben Eisner designed this game. Uh, This game, I believe, was launched in Kickstarter around 2008. Walker started talking about it in 2009. And every day in 2009, he said he was going to get it any day now. And so it's been 11 years of Walker saying any day now he was going to get Tidal Blades. And it finally showed up a couple of weeks ago. It washed up on the shore. Yes. I'm not actually making fun of how long it took to fulfill. The fulfillment process was fine. I'm just making fun of Michael Walker. And how if you've ever listened to our Pledge of Indifference sub-show, you've heard him say every week for a long, long time... (laughs) That he should be getting Tidal Blades any day now. And I kept saying the same thing. Tell me when you have a shipping notification. And then sure enough, it showed up. So Walker, why don't you give us a helpful summary of what one does in Tidal Blades? In Tidal Blades, you're managing a dice pool. And you're also managing your dials. While trying to complete as many challenges as possible. While focusing on your secret objective. And to keep the monster penalties at a minimum. That's a very accurate summary, Walker. Why, thank you, Mark. Hmm. Mark, let's get this out of the way. I, too, have something to get out of the way. You you go first. The game revolves around this dice system. Yes. Okay? And how many dice you get to roll, and how many you get to refresh or upgrade, and having enough dice to do all your actions for that round. And, like, we just talked about the feed your work worker mechanic, which I'm going to dictate to the monsters, right? So it's sort of, it's like this mechanic that the designers put in to sort of balance out, we're going to take stuff away from you. So Hmm. when you fight the monsters, you're going to lose dice to sort of like level the playing field. And it should be the funnest part of the game, Mark. And it really is the dullest part of the game because it's this constant pressure throughout the entire game. And in the end, it really, the rolling, you don't really need to roll the dice in my opinion, because if you haven't got enough shells to, bypass the penalties then you've done something wrong because the penalties of not having the shells is fairly devastating i agree with you entirely and rather than waste everyone's time by saying i think you're entirely right i I have an official statement that i've prepared on advice of counsel 
that I would like to read at this time, if that's okay. I, Mark William Bigney, co-founder and third most important host of So Very Wrong About Games, hereby formally apologize to Champions of Midgard for the disparaging comments I have made towards it in the past. I have previously described Champions of Midgard as a middling, uninspired worker placement game that wastes a rich and compelling theme by rendering it as bland as the game itself. These statements were true. However, having now played Title Blades, I wish to offer an amendment to my prior evaluation, which, with hindsight, I now regard as incomplete. I ought to have added the following defense to Champions of Midgard. It could have been worse. The way you introduce Title Blades, I think, is very good. You take the inside box lid of the deluxe edition which you have, which shows a beautifully rendered map of Fantasy Kingdom, largely coastal with some islands and an archipelago or two, and you say in a, in a very stentorious voice, Welcome to Naviri. And then the box that goes away and you start explaining the game. And all the flavor starts to drain out of everything. And this is not a criticism of your explanation. This is a criticism of the game. When I play Spirit Island and I play a card, I know, and this is independently of the fact that I, 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 was, I, I know from the designer, the card tells a story. The card speaks to a cultural and fantasy background. I, in point of fact, had to send, uh, have been an email correspondence with Eric Royce, the designer of Spirit Island, asking about the background to a single card. And this produced an email reply back and forth consisting of several pages of text about my asking about various details and him elaborating on very specific elements of history and things that, that are all informed by the game mechanisms. Every time I play a card in Title Blades, I look at symbols. And that's it. I initially, you know, look at the art. It's very colorful. The art is very well done. The universe is very well rendered. And none of it gets to the game. And that I find so unfortunate. Because the game mechanically doesn't have a whole lot going on. And the world seems very compelling. But yeah, like all of the components are there, Mark. Because you, you, the, the feeling of building up these dice and what the dice mean and the fact that there's two different trees of the dice, you know, or, or essentially four different ways it can go by the end. And the fact that you get to upgrade them and you have these character cards that will make your character completely different, not only than everybody else's, but every single game that you can make, you can make your character different. Yet they put all of this other stuff in the way of using these components the way they could be used. Well, in part, I think it's because they, they seem to have some pressure, and this might be psychoanalyzing or, or psychologizing the process too much, but it really does seem like the product implies that they had this core system of rolling dice to satisfy these challenges to get points, and then felt, well, we have to add more, or we've got to throw in all this other stuff. And as a result, the game doesn't get creaky. The game isn't isn't overly complicated, but it doesn't seem to want to play to its strengths, and it just kind of kind of dilutes everything, and it ends up feeling a little bit samey, a little bit generic, a little bit bland. And part of that just pulls you further away from the world. Nominally, the theme is that you're it's a standard fantasy trope, one that I don't think makes much sense. You're facing a cataclysmic invasion from the outside, from from these monsters, and so you decide to have some sort of elaborate contest to see who gets to go fight them. This is not my understanding of what you might call good strategy. If monsters are coming to kill you, you might want to send, I don't know, anyone who can to go fight them. But whatever, setting all that aside. So it's this weird combination of American Ninja Warrior on the one hand, go run this obstacle course, uh, go ride this jet ski through these flaming hoops, or go race these beetles across the desert, or go master time in some ill-defined way. 
But again, all of that gets blanched out and it's just, I need two blue symbols. Okay, I'm going to go get two blue symbols. And this was not just my experience. This was the experience of everyone else playing. At the end of the day, nobody said, I'm going to play this card. And we say the name of the card and it would look like a story. And say, ooh, I wonder what the story behind that is. Nah. It's just the experience of the game doesn't play to its strengths. And then there's the monster fighting. And I agree with everything you said. It's not sufficiently remunerative. It's not sufficiently risky. And for what it's worth, it also kind of undercuts the theme. Why are we auditioning to go fight the monsters when we can just go fight the monsters? It, it, it's, it's a little bit weird. And like I said, it's too bad because there's a lot of stuff there. Like you have your player board that has these four dials. One is the stunt power. They'll make the stunt cards better. One is the focus. That's going to tell you how many dice you can roll. One is uh, the dice refresher. It's going to tell you how many dice you get to refresh every round and upgrade. And one is for character progression. And as you do the challenges, you get to increase all these dials and you get to sort of decide which challenge you're going to do to increase which dial. And that's going to also dictate a different game every time because you can say, okay, this, this game I want to make, you know, get all these character powers out, or I want to see what happens if I maximize my stun power and get all these advantages from the stunt deck. And I just wish this all played out every time. The early parts of the game in praise of title blades are, I think the most compelling because you start off with all your dials at one and with all of your dials at one, you can't get very much done. And it has that classic evolving arc that a lot of euros do where you kind of have a sense of what you're expected to do by the end of the game. And you have no conception of how you might be able to do all those things by the end of it. And the power growth at the beginning, when you're really, really challenged to get anything done is nice. I like, I liked navigating those challenges trying to figure out how I could most efficiently upgrade, get the first all-important upgrades for my abilities. And then, from there, you think, well, I'm going to specialize in a couple of dials so I can be really good at something and get a lot of points from that dial, maybe. Or maybe should I just continue along trying to upgrade all of them uh, evenly, or maybe some kind of weird hybrid of the two. That part's okay. And then by the end of it, once you've done all those upgrading choices, you're then mostly just going through the motions and getting stuff, which is okay. It's fine. I don't find anything in, in Tidal Blades particularly objectionable. Again, very much like Champions of Midgard for me. I have to be very, very clear. Mostly, I just feel it's wasted opportunity. Because I, I too, find a lot of the stuff compelling. One of the characters is apparently like a three-and-a-half-foot-tall axolotl with temporal powers. That's amazing, and she looks awesome, and there are cards showing her doing badass things, and she's in a relatively dull worker placement game, <laughs> and I just feel like it's not, it's a strange wasted opportunity, and the, a lot of the components are less functional than they could have been, despite the fact that they're gorgeous, they're these weird discs that you use, so whenever you go to a new action space, you put your character on top of a disc, and they slide all over the place and the board isn't a board it's a series of disconnected boards and which seems well, no reason well it means i think it gives you the feel of islands right it's supposed to be this archipelago and maybe it gives you this disjointed thing that it's but all these different areas that you're visiting fair enough one thing your, I... your table doesn't look a whole lot like water though so it doesn't really look like i'm traversing water to get there uh, i'm sorry i'm so sorry next time I'll, I'll flood the house um what i thought was odd was that you're in this tournament and it doesn't, it didn't feel at any time that someone was winning the tournament because all the points sort of came at the end, you know what I mean? And they all came from so many different places. It didn't feel as though there was this big swelling of someone, you know, winning the tournament type thing. Yeah, there's, there's not a whole lot of player interaction either in terms of scoring or what have you. The, uh, that could have been another area where the monster fighting really had some teeth to it because in our games, very, very little attention was given to the monster fighting, and precious few monsters would ever die. 
partially because, not to go too deep into, in, into the weeds, when you go to fight a monster, any die you use to fight the monster goes out of the game. Any die you use to complete a challenge, on the other hand, which will probably get you roughly the same amount of points, just gets exhausted and might be used again later. If there had been some serious incentive to go and finish off a monster, that might have been different. If there had been an area majority context, contest of some sort, some serious consideration of endgame scoring being driven by who did the best against the monsters or, or totality. No, no, it was just, eh, you might get a smattering of points here or there. There are these monsters, and eh, they're, they're kind of noisy and loud, but uh, don't worry about them. Yeah, go ride this jet ski. And I, I feel like if there had been a little bit more competition saying, like, I, I have to go finish off that monster or someone else is going to and they're going to get this tremendous reward. No. Everybody gets a reward when the monster dies who's done any amount of damage to the monster. You hit it once, fine, you get the reward. You hit it seven times, here, have this minor extra Benny. It, it, so that part, again, kind of... And it took the teeth out of the monsters as well, which, again, are very well rendered artistically. Yeah, amazing. All the art is amazing. It comes with this huge art book that really... And which is full... It's not just the art. It has all these different stories that bring you into this world that just doesn't flush out as you're playing it. You already talked about the worker placement. I'm glad you did about, you know, the weird thing about placing the action discs and stuff and the, and the champions board. You talked about the monsters and, and if you put in the killing blow, usually you'd go one step up on the champions board. And then there was this judge that went around this giant figure that was, you'd got to go one step on up on the champions board and you had to move them around. It seemed like a lot of mechanism for this judge for so little payoff. Cause I think it made people concentrate on that champions board a lot more than they needed to, because the points there were fairly minimal in my opinion. Yeah, it's strange. I mean, I, I feel the same way about the monsters board, especially in terms of just the sheer weight of rules that are involved because the monsters introduced this, weird timing element at the end of every phase where we, the most frequent thing we had to go to check at the rule book wasn't how cards work or how a power worked or what have you. It was just the timing of all the things that happened at the end of a phase, which kind of brought the pacing down to a halt and, and was pretty unfortunate. The judge I thought was fine. A little incentive to go and, and have one area be more valuable than the others was okay, but you're right that people were probably overvaluing it. I felt that the judge actually introduced a, a fair amount of personality into the game just because he looked like such a jerk. His facial expression gave me more flavor than a lot of the it was the proper name, Judge. He's very judgmental looking. Very sure. judgy. Very judgy. Makes me wonder if all sentient bipedal turtles that are not subterranean ninjas are that jerky. The components are great. It has come these nice little squishy fruits and the shells and the miniatures that you get to move around. The, the, the game trays it comes with, with one minor gripe about them, but everything else about that is great. It comes with the great dice bin coliseum that you get to chuck the dice in. It was great. So let's talk about the dice rolling, because you alluded at the very beginning to the idea that the dice rolling was largely inconsequential. And I agree with you. The overwhelming majority of the time, whether you were doing a challenge or whether you were fighting a monster, if you had two or three spare shells, which was a currency that allowed to negate some of the penalties, you'd get exactly what you wanted. And it wasn't even a serious difference as to how well prepared you were or what kind of dice you had, really, because you just needed to throw a couple of rerolls at it, because rerolls come free. It's just a question of negating this 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 peril die. Yeah, you 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 were given this this artifact called the the massive the shell shield, shield shell shield, which I keep wanting to call spell shield, but and you you get to place these shells on it, and 
and you had to have not had to have but the disadvantage of losing the challenge was pretty huge you'd you'd uh lose the dice because you you roll this danger die every time you roll the dice and if an x came up you just throw a shell on your shield and it negated the 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 danger and if you didn't then the x would negate one of the dice so you wouldn't do the challenge you would sort of lose that action you lost that challenge card and it might have been either going towards your end game scoring or or finishing a set you had at the bottom so it was a huge loss just because you didn't have enough shells so i.e like we we're just talking about you'd definitely have enough shells and rolling the dice was just sort of you know going through the motions because you're going to get what you needed anyway and in a standard game you only have 12 actions anyhow now this is partially compensated by another feature which i think is half good half unfortunate uh, which is every time you go to an action space you do the action on the space some sort of global action that applies to groups of three spaces and you have the option of trying to do a challenge so for example i might go to the space and the space gives me a couple of shells additionally it allows me to buy something from a market which is you know item cards that you buy with the squishy fruit and Additionally, I might want to try a challenge of that particular type. That I thought was cool. It gave you a sense of powerful actions with consequence, but by the same token, it kind of meant that the tension of worker placement was kind of reduced because typically you'd go because you needed a thing and then you'd get all these other resources that would flow into your face like candy. And it also kind of leads to probably, you know, all told, for all my complaints, my biggest complaint about Tidal Blades is the downtime, honestly. Because the actions are substantial, you do a whole bunch of actions in sequence, probably only one or two of which you were prepared for, and the challenge resolution, despite the fact that the conclusion is probably foregone, that the die rolling is relatively inconsequential, and that it's very easy to modify the die results, you still have to wait for the player to go and modify the die results. You get the die pool together, you toss the dice, spend a shell, toss them again, spend a shell, toss the dice, allocate the dice, move all the things, then their turn is done. It sounds relatively brief, and all told, it largely is. But when you're talking about a relatively light die rolling worker placement game with only 12 actions the fact that it reliably takes a half hour per player so 90 minutes with three two hours with four we didn't play with five i don't ever want to play with five you were mostly just sitting around waiting for people to just chuck their dice over and over and it, it really sucked the momentum out of the game i really wish that it had a little bit more flow both in terms of the end or end of round consideration and in terms of just waiting for all these dice challenges to be resolved True. And the fact that you said you only have 12 turns, I'm wondering if with the luck, i.e. with the dice rolling and the challenge draw, whether uh, a little bit of bad luck spirals you out of the game. The, yeah. Right? Because you're, if you have a little bit of bad luck, you're going to be down dice, you're going to be down that action, and I think it almost takes you right out of the game if you have any bad luck whatsoever. If you fail an early challenge... And as we've said, all you need to do is make sure that you have some shells. But if you want to take a risk, and the game seems to want to encourage risk-taking, it's a dice game. You might figure, ah, oh, I'll see what happens. But if you fail an early challenge, in addition to being down all that, you're down that crucial early upgrade. And if you can't get those early upgrades, you're going to be strangled forever. I talked about how I liked that early tension. But I liked the, the tension of overcoming those bottlenecks. If you're still dealing with those bottlenecks by round two or even three... You're in serious trouble, especially when other people aren't, and just going off and doing more lucrative things. The balance is also somewhat suspect in that sense, if we're going to talk about the luck of the draw. The, the character cards seem to be a little bit all over the place in terms of the special powers. Some of them seem very situational, and some of them seem always, or almost always useful and, and very helpful at that. 
And I was generally worried, despite the fact that whenever you take a new challenge card, you have five face-up ones and can draw blindly from the deck. If you're looking for a particular skill to upgrade, a particular color of challenge that you need to do, and it's just not coming up, there's not a whole lot of safety valve to control for that. Yeah, a little bit. I, like I like I said when we were playing, it is a one in three. There's only three different types of challenges. So it's a one in three draw, and the draw deck is very friendly. You get to replenish immediately. One in three stuff. for the different arenas. I'm yes. talking about if you need a specific skill to upgrade. True. If you're if you're one of those players circling back to the, the notion of being behind the eight ball, in title blades, if you if you get off to a bad start or even a mediocre start, you're like, okay, I desperately need to find a challenge that is A, relatively easy to do. Otherwise, I'm wasting a whole lot of efficiency. And number two, improves my, say, green skill, because I desperately need to get green out of the doldrums. Then you're looking for something reasonably specific, and the deck isn't graduated. And so you might just have these incredibly difficult Baroque challenges to try to complete. Agreed. And then, lastly for me, is the expansion. I thought it was it was uh, good for an expansion. I thought it added this uh, mechanism where you'd get corruption, but give you a little bit extra... Uh, powers, a little bit extra uh, resources, and you could do any challenge you wanted there, but you just, you know, the judge never went there, and so I thought it was an interesting twist to the game. I liked everything about it. It has a new character, it has some new cards into all the decks, you know, like a good expansion should, and, and this new board. I liked everything about it, except the corruption token that said, if you have this token, every corruption token is worth minus one point to all their owners. Which can be a relatively large swing. Well, our, our, I think our points were uh, roughly in a 50 range, anywhere from, you know, 40 to 50. And my point loss was 10 points. So that's a, you know, quarter of my points gone due to this corruption. Yes. And I felt that that was a little bit punitive. You definitely knew that you were getting the... I, I, I know why it's there. It's there because they want to make sure that even though you're quote-unquote winning the corruption race, further corruption still has a risk attached to it. That's fine, but they probably could have done that with a little bit more nuance with the scoring anyway. As it is, whoever has the most corruption loses five points, everyone else loses nothing, unless this weird token's in play, in which case everyone loses something. So, yeah, it, it was fine. I, I liked a lot of the card effects. I liked the notion of paying for some sort of nefarious card scheme by getting corruption. That was cool, both thematically and mechanically, and I liked that bit. All right, to wrap up, I'm going to keep title blades, Mark. Well, for one thing, you'd never be able to ship it anywhere. Oh, yeah, the box. We're going to talk about the box. <laughs> Unforgivable. It actually was what inspired our discussion last week of boxes, and specifically boxes that are so strangely shaped they will A, not fit on a Calax, and B, will not fit in any normal box produced by humans. This all being said, it says Title Blades Part 1. I, love... I, think, I think is a threat. <laughs> I just love this theme, Mark. I think the theme pulls it through for me. I, I do enjoy, I know the characters seem unbalanced, but I enjoy uh, seeing how they all progress and, and, and change throughout the game. I, I don't, I don't mind all these little quirky bits of the game. I, I love the whole part. I love the game. It's a great little game. I love lots about it. And I find a lot of it frustrating in that the bits that I love don't come through. Yes. It's hard to be too down on a game where you can play as a surly anthropomorphic crocodile who has a grudge against the turtle people. It's hard to be too down on a game that has an adorable little anthropomorphic axolotl that can, that has some time manipulation powers. 
And there's a lot of personality and there's a lot of charm. It just doesn't quite manifest itself through the gameplay. And there's a lot of downtime. There's a, a bit of mechanical cruft insofar as the monsters are going through. Sometimes the game actively fights the theme and it's longer than it should be. So I didn't, I, I don't regret the time that I spent title, title blades. If in a fit of enthusiasm, we're sitting around and, and, and we say, what do you want to play? And Walker's like, I really want to play title blades again. I would humor him. And I'd be willing to do that. But all told, I felt that it was a pretty banal, forgettable package at the end of the day with some rough bits. And it didn't really wear its length particularly well. So that was that's my final opinion on Tidal Blades. And that's going to do it for us for this week. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. That's J-U-S-T-R-O-L-L-D-A-D-I-C-E at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at The Games You Like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We have a Patreon. Hey, hey everyone, we have a Patreon. We have a Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.